0: Hey Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here from the Thriving Farmer Podcast. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Roger Wasson, who is from Farm to Table Talk podcast in Idea Farming. So we actually interview each other on this show, so it's a little bit different format, but it's a fascinating listen, and I had a ton of fun, and we're going to try to do it again if you guys will let us. So welcome to the podcast, Roger Wasson.
1: No, welcome each other. This is always not when you do this. One of us has to decide who we're going to be leading off with. But I, th- I think the thing that it, Michael, I want to, I want to say that I'm so impressed with the space that you're in. You mm-hmm. look at the um, kind of the whole world of people being interested in farming and making more money farming and getting started farming, and I and and you're offering services to them, um, kind of. Explain that a little bit more about your podcast and your and the, and the programs that you're involved with.
0: Yeah, Roger. So we believe that anyone can farm, and we believe that farmers can and should make money at it. And my, my background is that we spent a decade in upstate New York. We started, my brother and I, at 15 and 16. We had no idea what we were doing. Um, we met great mentors. We learned business. Um, we implemented marketing, and we blew that business up to feeding hundreds and hundreds of families every single week in uh, the upstate new york region and uh, that 's what we brought to this this company when I started this company is I watched the people that took over our farm literally bankrupt it within a dozen months and uh, that was heartbreaking for me because of what we built, but it also showed me that you can have everything going for you, the perfect land, the perfect equipment, the perfect markets. Because again, I left this massive hole in the industry and it takes the business side of farming to make it work. So that's why we exist. That's what we do. Now we help farmers all around the world build successful profitable businesses. We focus on um, the um, banishing those limiting beliefs that farmers have, we help them hire teams, we help them figure out the systems and the enterprise budgets, we help them figure out how to get financing. Um, So that's kind of what we do is we really focus on the business side of farming. Not that we don't also say, you know, here's the best way to grow carrots, because while you're focusing on the business side of farming, you get all that information from the feedback. It's like, this is what's working right now. And so we're passing that all over um, when we share with farmers. But that's basically how we um, thats how we operate and how we built the business.
1: Well, you know, right off the bat, one thing that's very different, I think, about your journey and my journey is that I think I was making a conscious decision to leave the farm. Mm-hmm. When I graduated from high school, I was like the first Wasson in a thousand years, and I think that might be literally true, to not be a farmer. Mm. And at the time, I went off to college, and I thought I was going to do anything else other than that. And... And yet what I found is as I was studying communications and radio, television, and so forth, uh, I happened to get a job right out of college that was doing sales and kind of on the track to do management and broadcasting, and a farm show came available. Mm. And I started doing this farm show. I had an hour at noon and an hour early in the morning. Okay. And, and I reestablished the fact that I love people that are in farming Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and it's special. And after, you know, I guess people can feel the same way about people that run shoe stores or grocery stores or all sorts of things, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, I found that speaking for farmers and about what farmers were doing was what made me exciting. So I was kind of making a decision then I thought, I'm going to take a vow of poverty and have (laughs) no chance of making any money, but I'm going to follow my dream, which is to be able to speak for farmers. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, I get this series of jobs running associations of farmers. And so I've worked with beef industry and the pork industry and the sheep industry and the strawberry industry and the almond industry. And each one of those were usually people recruiting me away from my other job to say, come and work in our industry. So in that process, I've been to 49 states seeing farms and I don't know, dozens of countries and meeting with people that are also trying to make a living farming. And, um, and, and so, so I'm always an observer. You know, it's one of those things. I, I can keep talking to people about their farming, but mm-hmm. uh, I don't have the inclination and probably the, all the other things it takes to do it myself. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I think it's a fair criticism to say I'm sitting on the sidelines, where you've actually been in the middle of it you've, you've actually done it. And so, so um, I'm sharing, you know, other people saying what they do, but you've had that experience of you had hands on yourself. And so you've got a lot more credibility than I do. If you start telling people (laughs) about ways that they can be approaching their farming.
0: Well, but I think, you know, the thing Roger is that our movement, our industry, needs people on all parts. And you've come in with a very different take of being able to run these associations. And actually the question I had for you was talk to me a little bit about like, let's say an association, what's their goal, what's their focus to do? Is it with almonds? Is it to increase people eating almonds or just the awareness of them or what's that goal?
1: You know, the thing that I, is really uh, appealed to me is that uh, I working with these associations and councils and boards. Um, people step up and say that they need to do something to help their overall industry and work with Mm -hmm. others that believe that they can do something that makes a difference for everyone. And, And it's usually an act of sacrifice because it's a farmer or a rancher who oftentimes would rather stay home, be work, and maybe have to stay home and yeah. work on the farm. But instead, at the time, it was before they could hop on Zooms, so they had to hop on a plane and go to a yeah. meeting or something. But they often sacrificed a great deal. And I've seen in the years past, I've seen farmers that nearly lost their farms because they were too much involved mm. with the politics of the, of the industry. And yet I found that... So encouraging that people would do something other than for their personal uh, satisfaction or wealth, but with the belief that we all owe it to each other. We all have to work together. Mm. And then, so what my job would be, would be to facilitate that with staff and programs. And then it's either to sometimes address a regulation, a rule, a law, or to change the demand for a product because like almonds said, when I went to almonds, people said you should never eat almonds, they're terrible for you. And in fact, we did a survey of cardiologists and these cardiologists said that you should not eat nuts because they were high in cholesterol. Well, there's no cholesterol in nuts because they're (laughs) not an animal product. But the thing is that most doctors don't have to take a single course in nutrition. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the farmers
1: would say, well, how are we gonna tell them to do a difference and no one could do it by themselves but if they came together they were able to change an attitude and Mm -hmm. in fact they did change demand yeah
0: Yeah. and now almonds are i mean what using what percentage of california's water
1: well I use a lot it's a but they don't use any more than most other products do And, and yeah you know what happens is in california where we don't get any rain uh to speak of uh, almost anything needs almost four foot of acre feet of water. Like if you took four foot high and and had that cover an acre, yes. that's how much almost any crop takes. It varies just a little bit.
0: So and basically um, an inch a week throughout the entire year. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. But I guess what I'm saying is that it's just expanded the almond. I mean, like we buy almond milk. I mean it's and then like right. a dozen years ago, you wouldn't even have thought about that. Right. So that whole aspect of things is that it's just incredibly uh, grown and that being able to, as a board or as an association, affect that change and make these farmers uh, viable and profitable again.
1: Well, in fact, when I came to work for them, that there were 300 million pounds of almonds produced. Okay. And today they're really, really close to 3 billion pounds of almonds produced. Wow. From 300 million to 3 billion. And that's been driven by demand. And they export nearly 70% of it's exported around the world. And an awful lot of it can come back to just the image of almonds Mm -hmm. that has changed. And that has been done by almond farmers Mm -hmm. and their processors. And uh, they they were the ones that stepped up and they said, let's tax ourselves and we'll use that money to advertise, promote, and more importantly, do lots of research on the on the effects of consuming almonds. Mm-hmm. So uh, it you know it works in you know so many commodities. I've done it with other commodities as well. But that an individual couldn't do it. It's a, so you've got individual farmers that are saying, okay, I'm going to produce whatever this particular product is. But if the image of that product or the or the science behind that product isn't there no matter how tasty their product is, they're gonna have a hard time getting certain consumers at their farmer's market or at mm-hmm. their farm table restaurants or wherever else. And that's where they have to come together and, and work together in association with each other for their common good.
0: So yeah, you raise a very interesting point. And so I guess my question back to you would be, and I guess the thing is like most of our farmers are not raising just one crop. They're raising like a variety of vegetables or they raise several different meats. So I guess what it would be is, how do we take local food, because most of our farmers are selling local, and elevate that, I guess I think. And I think, I mean, obviously the USDA has worked on that, but it sounds like the kind of level that you have taken things to has been a whole different level than what, say, like the government spending can be for something like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think the thing is that uh, I think even whether you're local or uh, say if you're selling within 100 miles, mm-hmm. you're still, you're, you still benefit from having uh, research about that product and how it's good for you. Uh, so so whatever the product, you can almost name any product at all and say, I sell it only to a farmer's market. I sell it only to this restaurant or only to this local supermarket. Uh, unless there is science to back up the product that it's good for you in this way, other than just being delicious, then, um, then what you have to market in those cases, otherwise, other than this generic impact is the fact that it's local, the fact that it's fresher, it the fact that there are fewer steps between them and the and the, the, the chain, and oftentimes uh, a more special type of breed or variety or or a production system that is is appealing to your to your targeted consumers. So I guess I feel like everybody owes it to be supportive of their broader industry. And then they also have it on their, on their own to be Mm -hmm. able to work on those things that you can generate and develop your particular story. That's Mm -hmm. your unique story. That's appealing and authentic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I think you're right. Is there so many people that eat so many different things just for the health benefits I mean, Mm -hmm. like kale, who'd have thought kale would be a massive food, you know, and, and again, most kale out there is not like something you're like chowing down because you love it's something you're hiding in something else. But think of a million pounds of kale are being sold because it's been put out there as that superfood.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's so in, in your case, with all these, these farmers that you're in contact with, Mm -hmm. I'm curious um, how many of them are existing already and how many are wannabes that, that, you know, saying, okay, I've, I've got this, I've got this job I hate, or I'm not making enough money and I want to either start a farming operation on the side, or I really believe that the grass is greener on the other side, literally. And Mm so I want to become a farmer. So how (laughs) how do you sort those out?
0: Yeah. So it's, it's actually a really good, cause we reach, um, weekly around 50,000 farmers around the world and, uh, I forget how many million impressions we have every year, but I think it's like 9 million impressions on uh, through social media throughout the year. How many of them are? Um, I would say we actually have a, a wide range. Um, and again, I think it's the 80-20 rule, is that there's probably 20% of our audience that's actually like farming. And I would say the other 80% are, well, farming full-time is what I would say. You know, that- sure the full incomes or maybe even less the full income, but there's, when we do our surveys, there's a fair amount that are, you know, they're farming on the side, they're doing a couple things here and there, but it's not their full income. Or we have a lot of dreamers. We put them in a stage called the dreamer stage, which is a great stage to be in because you're just experimenting and trying everything out or a support phase. So you're either like an extension agent or you're like, you run your local farmer's market or, um, you know, something like that. So we have a lot of those folks as well who are, you know, cheering on the farmers in our communities. Um, but yeah, it's a wide range and it's fun to work with all the different stages. And, and, and what we've done is we've actually divided it into those five stages. So we got the dreamer, the, um, the beginner, uh, the start phase, then we call the thriving phase, and then we call the mentor phase. So we actually have that stage at the end where they're very successful. Um, the business is you know making a full-time income and they're actually ready to hand the reins to the next generation. Or they're just actively doing education around uh, farming because they believe in it, and uh, they kind of just want the next the next person to succeed.
1: So I ass- I assume that almost uh, a big share of those people that are the thriving and the more full time, mm-hmm. I imagine they started off as dreamers.
0: Oh, absolutely, we all did, um, and. Roger, I believe because I feel like myself that I'm back to that start phase or that beginner phase in our new farm that we're building out. Um, So, you know, I was at that mentor's. I don't know, I'd love to say I was teetering on the aspect of that mentor stage. I was definitely, we were definitely thriving um, and we were educating. So I guess we would be into that mentor stage, but I guess I still <laughs> revere my mentors as that mentor stages, you know, the ones that have been doing it for 30 years. And uh, you know, just they're the ones I call when I have still have questions. Um, but yeah, I mean, and so I feel like now I'm back to, especially as you change enterprises too, because like right now um, we never grew mushrooms. That's the first enterprise we're starting here in Ohio on our new farm is building out that mushroom facility, learning all about the different aspects. I'm actually paying consultants to talk to about, you know, exactly how to set things up um, and lots of night at YouTube and um, just research on the Internet. So I feel like we can kind of go back and forth. I guess what I would say is that, you know, you're also in the stage that you're in mentally. Is that yes, obviously part of that stage is that, you know, in the start phase, we say that the business is going to like, it's starting to support you. Okay. So like there's actually income coming in and obviously you still may have more going out because you're still paying for capital investments, but you can see the needle moving on your assets to debt ratio, I guess is what I'm saying there. Um, But I think so much of it is mental because so many farmers, if they aren't in a good headspace, you can easily get derailed or, well, they just won't buy it. So why should I bring it to the farmer's market? Or I just won't do it next year. It's too much work. When you really, when you look at the big picture and you start running your numbers, and that's why we're such a big believer in running those numbers and knowing your profit centers on your farm of just that aspect of, oh my gosh, we are making, uh, you know, f- we are making space forward or progress forward in our farming journey. You know, it's hard
1: for me to accommodate numbers and passion within, mm. uh, under the same tent. <laughs> uh, numbers just seems to be really practical and, 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 and kind of boring to me. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, but passion, uh, I think that there's an awful lot of farmers that I know, farmers and, and ranchers, that they just love being outdoors. Mm-hmm. And they would like to make a living uh, that they wouldn't have to be in an office someplace. And so part of that appeal is to be kind of outdoors and fresh air. I wonder what percentage do you think that that's an important criteria for people to get into
0: it? Oh, uh, 99%. I mean, yeah, we don't yeah. get into farming normally to be rich. I, I definitely know some farmers that drive BMWs and Lexuses um, because they've done a very good job throughout their their, their careers. Um, but I think we all get into it because we love one aspect of the farming lifestyle. I mean, I just love growing food.
1: You know, that's another point I wanted. I've been thinking about. Maybe we should stop referring to them as farmers because what i'm what I'm thinking is that well what do they have in common because uh, other than just the outdoors thing, because you can get greenhouses now you can do uh-huh. you can you can grow actually in your own house, you can you know be able to put up the LED lights and everything and have your have your own uh, small small greens and all sorts of stuff like that that you can grow right now. but maybe the term grower is mm-hmm. is also um, is um, farming suggests that you are certainly uh, planting the seeds, uh, cultivating, you know, harvesting, and so forth, but also grower is mm-hmm. that you're able to, to grow again in the greenhouse or in a hoop or in a in a large yard. It could be cattle, it could be lettuce, you know. Yeah, uh, grower or producer.
0: So, you know, that's a really interesting thing. And I'm glad you brought that up because these are the conversations that my mentor had with me every once in a while. And he'd be like, you know, someone told me how's the garden growing. And he says, he said, the farm's doing just fine. So it's really interesting how different people think about different words. And I, I think, so here's how I think about it. And again, I, I don't know if there's uh, any validity to this, but to me, someone who's growing is just actually someone doing the work. So you could have the employee would be considered a grower in the greenhouse. To me, the farmer is the one who, and again, it could be like the farmers, I feel farmers are feeding people, but growers can be feeding people. To me, the farmer's more the one who's actually running the business, taking the risk. Um, I, I don't know, is there, what do you think about that? Well, I
1: don't know, it made me think of something else too. Um- because I think sometimes the people taking the risk really aren't much of farmers anymore. In that, yeah. there's, we, um, there are a lot of people that um, live in town and uh, manage, uh, have investments in farming enterprises. Uh, or, or it happens throughout the country. We certainly have mm-hmm. a lot of that in California.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: And I, I look at some people as farmers that are, might be called farm workers. Yes. Because uh, there may be a farm that I know, I know several farms that have 300 employees. Yeah. And you can go out and speak to somebody who might have um, actually come here from Mexico uh, not that many years ago, perhaps. And, and they are just magicians in the farm. Oh, absolutely. Uh, they know the soil, they know the varieties, they can look at it, they know when it's ready, they've got instincts and knowledge and so forth. And and they go home at night, very proud of the fact that they were working outside, and that they were helping grow this food. Now, there's a difference in the total amount of, of dollars mm-hmm. uh, probably brought in. But then there are people that are, as I have just described, that don't own it, but there's so much really, really outstanding farmers and they are able to produce a good living for their family and, and, um, you know, have a mortgage and a couple cars and send the kids to college and, and, and all Mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. And so, so I keep kind of struggling with how we have maximum inclusiveness Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, Mm
1: -hmm. because uh, how strange is this to say that we've got people that were Um, farming right now that we're making $200,000 a year in Silicon Valley. And now they've moved off to the hills and they're making $60,000 a year and they're happier than they ever were. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, you have people that don't have a title to anything that don't own the property, but are producing and are feeling huge satisfaction and are finding that they're good returns and able to take care of their family too. Mm
0: -hmm. Well then Roger back to you. What is a farm? because you and I both have seen factories, which growth, f- which I guess produce protein or produce lettuce. Um, and, you know, I guess, what does a, fa- what is a f- how does a family farm fit into all this? Yeah,
1: you know what, I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a really, it's a really good question. And, and I think that, um, um, I think a farmer, and, and in fact, by the way, I, we started, our consulting business is mm-hmm. called Idea Farming. And Mm -hmm. the reason that we chose it to be called idea farming was we thought as a farm, we'll take an idea and you plant the seed and you cultivate it and you Mm -hmm. take care of it and you bring it along and you, and you harvest an idea in that respect. An idea is not much different than a tomato. Uh, And, and so I would say that, uh, that a farmer is often dealing with a renewable resource is also... Uh, bringing something, helping it grow and, and produce. And I do think that farmer today uh, could be using uh, some of these vacated shopping centers is what I think Mm -hmm. might be happening next. And I think that we'll see some of these shopping centers. We figured out that we don't need as many as we used to do. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. you're going to see them growing leafy greens and other things in, in abandoned Nordstrom's department stores. And, and the, people that work in there are farmers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think the other thing that I've been intrigued with too are people doing more grazing and appreciation for the fact uh, we've had all these horrible fires here in, in mm-hmm. the, on the West Coast and, and really better utilization or more utilization of grazing again and recognizing that that's important too. I mean, they're farmers too, although you do get into a little tricky there. Some people... Especially out west, prefer to be called ranchers than farmers. Yes. So you you have to be able to do rancher slash farmer, you know, or something, something like that. But they're they're all, I think, farmers. I'm I'm um, I'm hard pressed to um, draw the line anywhere. Possibly it doesn't extend to having tomato plants on the balcony of your condominium.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, but yeah. I'm not sure. I haven't ruled that out yet.
0: Mm-hmm yeah i mean we're all part of the food production system i guess is where we can put it but you're right where does you where do you draw the line as a farmer
1: well and we say food and it's fiber as well too certainly uh, yeah we get into cotton we get into we get into wool there's all sorts of uh, hemp now yep Mm -hmm. Uh, producing hemp is becoming very very big well and
0: food is medicine too so now we're producing medicine that's right that's right that's right
1: so it's it's, it's really, uh, really fantastic. It's hard to get your arms around it because it's that classic, you know, blind man describing the elephant sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Because it depends on where you are, you know, like you are in, um, based in Southern Ohio mm-hmm. and I'm out in California and the agriculture is very different mm. in, in all yeah. those areas. You've got people that are listening to these stories around the, around the world which is, it's interesting because the people can be inspired by what they're hearing of a large-scale operator in California or somebody that's in upstate New York that is just producing for a farmer's market. Mm-hmm. And and there's something about that that is appealing to each of them and appealing to consumers too. I, I think that the consumer side of this is that they, they sense that there's this passion, uh, commitment, that that there's something more than just trying to maximize profit, that there's people that are taking pride in what they're producing and, and not taking shortcuts.
0: Mm. I want to actually stop you right there because I think that actually is one of the huge parts of what it takes to be a farmer is that you're focused on that passion aspect, that doing better of taking care of the earth, of regenerating the soil, I guess, as I would like to say, Um, because if you're just producing, you're just that cog in the wheel, I feel like that removes that whole aspect of passion. And you and I can both respect an artist who's got incredible passion and just is excellent at their craft. I mean, I look at some of these people that do woodworking. I love woodworking. I wish I had the patience to do some of these intricate projects that they do, but Mm -hmm. I respect that passion. And so I think that is such a huge part of how we view and the passion of you know building the soil up and uh and and growing that perfect head of lettuce or as you said larger scale the ranching of you know taking care of the um we have one one person we interviewed glenn elzinga out in out in idaho he's on like 40 or fifty thousand acres of ground and he's just talking about how they're regenerating it and the the native wildlife is coming back and interacting with the wolves and how they had to realize how to manage with the wolves actually you know coming back back into their area of the, of Idaho. So I think yeah, that passion yeah. side is so, is so key too.
1: Yeah, no, that it, it really is. And I'm wondering when you talk about somebody that large, that's 40, 50,000 acres or something, they've got to have a couple hundred people down through their organization that, that include people that have as much passion mm-hmm. as the as the person that had the title to the land. Mm-hmm. And well, it I... wasn't simply tied to the fact that they necessarily, uh, Earned as a whole lot of money, but there's but that passion element is something you can tell people either got it or they don't have it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and with, with Glenn too is they actually rent most of their land that comes from its yeah. Bureau of Bureau of Land Management. And I forget how many cowboys they have, but the cowboys actually live with the cattle from mm-hmm. they, they actually travel throughout that forty six thousand acres. You've got to be committed for that.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's. Uh, and, and that's one of the things I, I've been really, really fortunate because I've managed an organization in Indiana and, mm-hmm. uh, and the National Pork Producers Council in Des Moines, Iowa, and in the Rocky Mountain states working with uh, sheep ranchers that were all over the range states that had sheep herders that you, to get to where the sheep were, you had to trail
0: mm. for a
1: whole day, you know, leading the mule, mules up to where a herder was in the mountains with, with wow. five sheep. And, and then back into California where we have larger scale and almonds and other things. And, uh, and I've seen it everywhere. And I've, um, and, and again, I guess I know it and when I see it and feel it, and, and, you know, and I've been fortunate to be able to do that. You're sensing this too. And I think consumers do too. And people, when consumers are showing an interest in um, caring, uh, about uh, how how uh, something's produced. I have a hard time saying that because it's not that there is a single right answer. It's no. kind of like they can accept any right answer if they can sense that it's no BS.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. that's
1: why, uh, you know, when you talk to people that go to farmer's markets and you talk to the farmers and they, and they come up and they'll say, well, are you organic? Or are you doing this or that? There almost is not a wrong answer if a farmer is able to explain why they're doing what they're doing. Now, that won't make the consumer an expert on that, but what it does is let them empathize with uh, with saying, well, this is a person with passion that cares and is doing something special because they care about their lettuce, they care about their pork, they care about how they're farming, they care about Mm -hmm. how they're treating people. And I want to support that. I want to buy food that is, is uh, produced from, some, from people that care. Mm,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that is so key. And I think, too, that it comes back, as you said, that story. So it comes back to just the marketing aspect, telling that story, and uh, being able to have that personal connection with their farmer. You know,
1: one thing I got to ask you about is that you're dealing with farmers that uh, can't pay the bills on just feeling good, mm-hmm. and um, and that's where where I I wonder about because to get into farming today, uh, if somebody's going to get started, they have to have somebody um, make a deal that they can get uh, they can buy some land or that they can rent some land or something, um, but. Or or space, you know. I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier we might be farming in empty yeah. department stores, but I think that so it's it's not easy getting in, and then it's not um, and even though you're feeling really great about being able to work outdoors or the satisfaction of producing something and feel proud of what you're producing, um, you got to make enough money to pay the bills. Absolutely. And and, and so that's what I'm curious about because you got all these people that are listening to you and you're talking to how do you kind of help them through that transition? Yeah. Uh, they got to get some tough love every once in a while, don't they? And saying, hey, yes. fine, fine, but there's a business, you got to pay the bills.
0: Yeah, and actually that's I'm glad you brought that up. And it's actually a kind of a little bit of a multi-step uh, question. So, we'll, let's let's first get into talk about the getting into farming because I think that's something that so many people and I tell people start, just start because in the beginning there's no wrong answer, there's no wrong thing. I mean, yes, you're going to fail. We all failed when we were starting. I have so many mistakes we made. um, Even this year, um, we do a little bit of wholesale cropping. And there's a few things I wish I had done differently even this year. Um, But the thing with starting is so many times you can get started on a lot less than you think. Um, So uh, up until last year, this we're on a brand new farm in the last couple months. We bought eight acres here in Ohio. We're building it out with a full-scale farm and agritourism center. Um, But I was farming in my backyard. We lived on the market, the main street through our little town. And we had a hoop house in our backyard. We were growing mushrooms in our basement. And uh, we were feeding people in our community. Um, And the other thing with it is even if you can't farm yourself, there's a farm nearby that I guarantee will allow you to come help them farm. Um, obviously, I wish they would pay you. That's the goal is that everyone should be uh, reimbursed for their effort and their sweat of their brow. But even if you can't get paid, just being able to go experience and learn from them to get that beginning experience. Because one of the things obviously is access the funds, and one of the biggest things if you want to go out and get a USDA micro loan, which is a great way for farmers to get some additional um, some initial capital, is they just want to see some experience. They want to know that you've got some um, traction through all of this, and so that if you can have a farmer sign off and say yes, they've been working for me for a year or two, um, or have, you know, done, learned this and learned that, then it's a lot easier for them to get startup. But the other thing is, and actually we actually did a course, we just finished a course about this, as we call it the Start Your Farm Intensive, is it takes people from that idea to actually going through doing a business plan to figuring out the financials to finally going and getting funded because we realized that was such a hold up for folks mm-hmm. is that people um, that whole idea of oh my gosh how do i put a business plan together and i remember doing this in college it took us an entire semester it was one of the two college classes i actually finished i only actually did two so <laughs> i got an a on both of them so i like to say i was a straight a student even though i did only two classes in college um but uh it's it's that aspect if you look at this 40 page business plan and you're completely overwhelmed. But what you have to realize is that how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? So it's an accumulation of tiny little steps to this whole thing. So yes, how do you start a farm? It may look incredibly overwhelming, but I, I tell people don't start raising chickens and don't go buy a fifty thousand dollars pickup truck. Those are my two rules. <laughs> don't do those.
1: <laughs> those are the two things I was going to do.
0: <laughs> but everyone does that, and yeah, so yeah. and and with with chickens is. Chickens are hard to make money at a very small flock. And so people go, well, you can't make money on that. And they stop farming, or they tie up all their capital in either that $50,000 truck or making that now $800 a month payment for that that truck. So, um, you know, what I would say is to get started, just go out and start in your backyard or go working with a farmer. Or, you know, again, uh, there's so many free resources on YouTube or the, um, you know, with the podcast, your podcast, you have so many interesting guests that are coming on. So people just start listening to that and get those ideas flowing. And again, you're gonna pick the idea that works for you because newsflash, not every farm is gonna be the same. I mean, you've worked in so many different industries in farming, I've worked Mm -hmm. with farmers, again, in just our little uh, business, we have farmers doing aquaponics, mushrooms, uh, flowers, Uh, herbs, we have them vegetables, meat. Uh, My brother out in Oklahoma, he raises sheep and cows and chickens. So there's so much a broadness out there and your soil, your location is going to dictate so much of that. And every farm is not going to be the same. Yeah, it's really, it's really
1: interesting. I mean, that was a, that was a great description that you were just kind of going through there and it makes so much sense. You could just start that way. But then I, I, you know, I think back kind of a think of growing up in an area in central mm-hmm. Illinois where they were all small farms originally, you know, I think that, and there were people that were, when I was really, really young, that were still kind of getting by on 70, 80 acres mm-hmm. or a hundred acres. And that all went away because they could no longer make enough money. So mm-hmm. it's really one of those things I still struggle with because I thought, well, but wait a minute, when it did cost a whole lot less and people could not stay in business you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, more than that, and they had to get out because uh, you, know, you just couldn't make a living on yeah. 75, 80 acres or 100 acres. Why is today different? And, mm. and when costs are so much higher, why can you survive and prosper today on, on fewer acres than you could 50 years ago?
0: Well, that's a great question. I'm so glad you brought that up because we work with farmers that are crushing it on sub-acre farms. What I mean is they're farming less than an acre and they're making multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars. And obviously this year is a little unique because of COVID. Everyone went for the local food. Um, But even in the last year, they were doing $300,000 on less than an acre. And so this year they're now up to about $400,000 on less than an acre, which blows my mind that you can do that. And it's not like they're just growing microgreens or just growing mushrooms in a building and that's how they're able to make it. They're actually doing like greens and root crops and things in the field obviously growing um, protein products the eggs the chickens uh, uh, pork are much less intensive so you have to have a lot more acreage but the reason they're able to do that there's two things one the rise of the internet um, which allowed Mm -hmm. us to be so much more connected and sell very easy which then brings up my second point is they're selling direct to consumer So what happened is the government decided that the best way to do it was to push over this grow commodity crops. And this obviously started, I feel, back in World War II, where we needed farms to produce massive quantities of a very few things that could drive the military industrial complex, which was needed to fight World War II. But the problem is, is we didn't shift back to being that very small farm selling to everyone in the neighborhood. It kind of kept going to sell wholesale, but you're at such a small scale, you can't make that the the margin gets thinner and thinner and thinner. And even my friend who has an 8,000 acre farm, the next town over, um, he's great. He's a good friend. I chat with him every once in a while. We talk about how things are doing. He has diversified his income. So he now not only has the 8,000 acres they farm, he has multiple rentals which pay for things he also has a a grain um, uh elevator so he does it has the elevator he does custom spraying and work for his bigger operators and so what it does is in the down years he sells a few of his rentals And then in the up years, he buys a few more rentals. And obviously, you know, through the various business units, he's able to filter out the money. So I think, you know, the aspect of, I think the broken cog in the wheel is the commodity aspect of it. And we know that that's broken too, because we're, and some aspects we're subsidizing a lot of the corn and beans. And obviously I'm not saying it's across the board, the commodities bad because like almonds and stuff, I think those, uh, some of those organizations are doing quite well. Um, I mean, still, obviously, you have to be very innovative in how you're doing it. And you know, that firsthand. But I guess what I would say is the old model of being able to just sell, you know, a few products to just a local distributor, because those distributors are taking more and more of that dollar. Um, I think is that the you may know the statistic is it 17 cents that the farmer gets on average of the dollar in the retail store.
1: That's a really good example. I thought that was a great answer. I'm going to have to re-listen to this myself now that i you know, put this podcast up, and I often don't get to listen to my own podcast that much after I get enough edited. <laughs> I want to hear you say that all over again because I think that's a really good explanation. And I'm thinking, uh, as you were saying that, here in Sacramento, for example, mm. the UC Davis Hospital, which is our major big hospital here in, in Sacramento, uh, the person who is uh, Santana Diaz, who is in charge of it all, uh, he's sourcing now directly from all local farmers within 75 acres. And for so all they're producing for thousands and thousands and thousands of meals, they are sourcing much of it directly from farmers. Wow. So the farmers are making more money. They are really kind of cutting out some of the distributors going to mm-hmm. the, um, those hospitals. And that's a model that can really happen Virtually mm-hmm. anywhere in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and so there's more money for the farmer and uh, when you can get those direct channels.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, there's two problems with this. Is yeah. One is farmers have to, to do what you're envisioning right there. And I think it's brilliant, and that's the way it needs to be, is the direct sales, is that farmers a lot of times are very independent, And they don't like to always play nice sometimes. And that, you know, what I'm saying is they just love the aspect of producing 30, 50, 100 pallets of lettuce and it go out the door to one person. And so when you actually have to now build an office into the back end of the, the aspect of dealing with those smaller consumers, that is something that a farmer has to implicitly make that decision and embrace that or else they're going to fail at that, that trying to do that. Um, and so that's where some of these co-ops, like if you look at, let's say, Organic Valley uh, was one of the first organic co-ops and especially for milk. And now they've grown to other crops. Um, but my friend, Andre Kiltama, we've actually had him on the podcast here. He now has a, I think it's called Three Rivers Alliance co-op mm-hmm. in, uh, in New Hampshire, and they're doing very similar. So they're helping farmers and they're kind of the co-op now almost becomes that middleman, but now that's also taking a percentage of the sales too. Sure, So, But it comes back to, do you as a farmer want to get 100% and spend some hours in the office, or do you want someone to actually be doing those phone calls for you and give up a percentage of that? And I think, I don't know what's right now. I think it's every farm is going to be different. And uh, you know the beauty of this system is that allows that is, yes, you can sell your leaks directly to the hospital system, or you can have someone else. I obviously love to see a farmer getting maximum aspects, but I also do know in our work with farmers is when we run the pencil marketing costs money.
1: Well, that's those are really good points. And the other thing I think of is that um, there's so much opportunity for grazing. You know, I, I know something about mm-hmm. where you're from, and I, I'll bet you can go out the front door and go down the road, and you can you can go by areas that could graze all kinds of sheep and goats and cattle and and there's there's woods and there's yes. hills and there's all sorts of, of things we can do all over the nation. There's that potential. But uh, if you're growing vegetables, most of the farmers have the capability. They can process them and take them and you know, deliver them or mm-hmm. work through a food hub or something. But if you're growing livestock, that's hard to do. It's hard to find places that you can take the livestock and have them slaughtered and cut into cuts and packaged and distributed and that's uh, for. there's so much opportunity there but that strikes me as really one of the one of the big gaps we've got throughout the country mm-hmm. of having adequate local processing for the protein production
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay so I'm glad you brought that one up too so one of the things here in Ohio is we have this um, extension of metro parks which is tens of thousands of acres which have been wilded and um, i mean what they'll do is they'll buy up a new section of land and just let it go wild which is great that we've got you know parks and people love them and they go mushroom foraging in them but here's the thing all that land could have cows and sheep grazing over it a couple times a year and actually improve the quality while producing beef for pennies um yeah it's it's it blows my mind that we have all this acreage and again it's great we enjoy them, um, but even the trees. I mean, sustainable timber harvesting is key, and you in the West Coast know better than anyone yeah. of having actually managed forests is so key. Um, here in Ohio, obviously we have enough rain, we don't get wildfires, um, but when a tornado comes through, we sure lose our shirt. You know, we just it lays down massive swaths because the trees are so big and so old. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you're right that we also are facing massive issues with the processing. And so I think um, it's Thomas Massey and I think some of the other folks in Congress are trying to get the Prime Act passed. And what that allows is that allows that, again, that connection of the farmer to the consumer with getting rid of the inspected um, uh, slaughter plant so that you can, because so, okay, we have a local butcher here and he's not USDA inspected. Um, so he's not selling direct to retail. He's selling basically, it's a, uh, you bring the cow, I'll butcher it. I'll put it in packages stamp not for resale comes right back to you. Right. He, he is booked till February of 2022.
1: I can believe it. I went to a place in Pennsylvania that is, has a facility. Uh, and, and they are going through thousands and thousands of shoe a day that uh-huh. are are well, no, maybe not a day. Maybe it's hundreds a day, because there are people that are coming from New York and Philadelphia, and they take title to it, and they're they're assisted in uh-huh. the processing, and then they take the take the meat home with them, or take them back to the restaurants or stores. But uh-huh. they actually uh, get around the, these other rules because they are taking title to it, and uh-huh. they're participating in the in the, the slaughter. But there's a there's a huge demand. I mean. You know, when you talk about something like this, there's just so much food available and so much that could be produced if we could solve some problems, like you're saying, like this, like the Prime Act. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I ran into somebody in your neighborhood back there in that part of Ohio that was working on some technologies that was using in um, smartphones to mm-hmm. be able to uh, go into what were borderline locker plants and, and be able to use a smartphone to detect pathogens So you could look for Salmonella, E. coli, Listeria, that Mm -hmm. sort of thing and get instant feedback. Again, running it off a smartphone, which kind of almost makes those small meat plants in some ways on an an even keel with Mm -hmm. these large central slaughterhouses.
0: Mm -hmm. But Roger too, I mean like uh, riddle me this, I mean, which are the meat plants which are having the outbreaks? It's the big ones. It's not sure. these little ones. Sure. It's, so we have a broken system already, and we're in. We're unfairly punishing the small plant. Uh, I mean, like, if you ha- have you interviewed Greg Gunthorpe on the the podcast? No. You definitely should, I'll try to hook you up. I've been trying to get him on my podcast for a while and he's a very busy guy, especially since they completely had the pivot with COVID. But he tells the stories of just trying to work with their local USDA inspector, um, that the small plants just get the runaround. Um, uh, Polyface, you've interviewed Joel a few different times. And I I had a conversation with him, actually had a conversation with one of his team because we know a lot of the team there at Polyface. And there's like, oh. We all of a sudden have all this fat in stock and we have all these livers in stock. And what was it? It was the inspector changed and all of a sudden everything was safe again. It was personal preference. There's no standard in this. And so it's just based on how they're feeling that day.
1: Well, there is a variation like that. And, And there are people that take different commodity products to different parts of the country, even the world for different grades. I mean, there's uh you can you can end up having producing uh, producing almonds in in California and put them on big containers and go in ships into Europe and find that uh, you will you will pass inspection in Spain but not in the Netherlands or something. I'm just giving mm-hmm. examples like that. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and oftentimes what happens uh, in those cases it's they call it market rot. Uh, when the market goes the wrong way and they think, gee, I've spent too much money for this product, Mm. they'll just probe more and more until they come up with aflatoxin and say they can reject the load.
0: And so, you
1: know, it's, it's, um, and and then locally there's variations of that. When there were more packing plants around, you could say, you know what, I get a better USDA inspection uh, and less likely to run into trouble if I go to Dubuque instead of, you know, go to Sioux city.
0: Yes. uh,
1: (laughs) You know, and there's, so you still have the imperfections of having kind of humans kind of that are yeah. making some of these decisions and regulating these processes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. wow man goodness i tell you it's it's uh it, it, i really enjoy having a conversation with you michael because you've got answers to a lot of these a lot of these issues and you're getting me all excited i'm thinking i, I feel so badly that i'm not farming yet I, <laughs> You know, I've been on the fringes now for decades, and I think that, okay, well, jump in. Going to go ahead and be a farmer like, you know, the previous 10 generations of Lawsons.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, you could be growing, you know, mushrooms in your basement.
1: <laughs> don't, you don't know that much about California because we don't have basements in California.
0: Oh, okay. Yes. We get slabs. <laughs> <laughs> yes actually we only have a cellar so i oh, i didn't learn okay. about that till i came out here to ohio because uh, you know in new york we all have basements because we have a four or five foot frost line so we've got to go deep and so i didn't yeah. realize that cellars were just a little you know you whacked your head every time so <laughs> uh,
1: we have cellars we just put wine in it so. okay uh, yes uh, uh, well i tell you what it, it's been great having a conversation with you and I, I i hope we can do it again uh i i feel like um uh, the the journey that we're both on it's exciting because mm-hmm. something there is anything as old as farming well mm-hmm. i mean there must be because farming's only been around for 10,000 years in agriculture per se but in the last 10,000 years you can say well what's left what's new what's to get excited about but i think we're both finding that there's quite a bit to be
0: mm-hmm.
1: excited about and to be encouraged about
0: Yeah, I am so interested in, well, the world of fungi. I've just gotten a recent fungi kick. And um, also just soil life in general. I mean, I think that right now is the unknown um, open range, the Western front, as it were, with agriculture's understanding the micro size of everything. And that's what gets me so excited right now.
1: We're going to have to have another conversation about that because I just got off of of a webinar about uh, uh, the microbiome. And I find that extremely interesting too because there's, there's so much to learn and even people that have been farming forever don't quite understand this whole thing. And, and you know, I just recently heard a, one report that was saying that as you start being able to measure the microbial life of your soil, that you could find that within an acre there could be this 10 square foot area that needs zero extra nitrogen, and another that needs a lot more. And even how much they need of of these, of the different fertilizer, reflects the health of the the microbial health of the soil. And and, um, boy, as we get more and more to the point that we can measure it even precisely, and certainly some of these farmers that, like you were describing, they're making a good income off of five or six acres, they can, are going to be able to get it down to knowing what an individual plant knows, let alone what uh, you know a five square foot area of their five acre farm, mm-hmm. and you know that frontier is just really really exciting too.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, all right, folks, if you want to listen to Roger, because I know we're doing this for both of our podcasts, you can find him on the Farm to Table Talk podcast. um, And that's available on all podcast platforms. Um, He's got a a ton of excellent, excellent episodes. I look at his list of guests and I'm very envious that he scored so many of them. (laughs) So, Roger, thank you so much for this conversation. This has been fun. Well, Michael, I, I hope
1: everybody finds your podcast as I have now as well. And I'm just encouraged by uh, what you're sharing. And, and I, I just love it that it's not just pie in the sky. I mean, you're able to connect this fashion with people that are really making it work. And there's a lot of people that want to understand that. And I look forward to us having a conversation again sometime because uh, it's been a lot of fun.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, folks can find us at the thrivingfarmerpodcast.com And uh, we actually have another mini series podcast that we've been playing around with, which is kind of our personal farm journey, which is called the uh, Starting the Farm on Central. So that's uh, only a couple episodes in, but it's a lot of fun just to kind of share little like diary updates as we build out this new farm.
1: Michael, we're just going to have people going back and forth that listen to Farm <laughs> to your podcast and then we'll... we'll uh... Oh yes, uh, I know you like to hear from people as I do as well. Other suggestions and stories, but uh, but I've enjoyed having the conversation. We look forward to having people listen to our conversation and doing it again with you sometime.
0: Absolutely, Thank thank you. Hey, Thriving Farmers, next week on the podcast, I have Sarah Conley, who is a garlic farmer from Illinois. Now, Sarah, this year they had a little bit of a challenging season. Stuff didn't grow as well as they'd like. They had kind of drowned out last fall. So what they did is they went and turned it into more of a value-added crop. So they did some garlic bread, they did grilled cheese, garlicky grilled cheese, and uh, they did a drive-through. And uh, Sarah comes on, shares about that. We talk all things growing garlic. We talk, she's in a third season. So she shares how she got started, some of what she's learned along the way. But it's a fabulous interview. Can't wait to share next week, Sarah Conley from Conley Farms.